Hi everyone, and welcome to One Question with Pastor Adam. And this is season three, episode two. So we are off to a good start here on season three. Last week, last week we talked about sin and repentance. We're just diving right into all the fun stuff here at One Question. So uh, welcome everybody to season three, episode two. Today, one. this is one question, and uh, I am Pastor Adam, and I am pastor to believers and doubters, to unfaithful Christians and faithful atheists. And friends, Jesus was not afraid of questions, and neither are we here at One Question with Pastor Adam, and so we are going to dive in to the big questions. Hey, Dina. Good to see you. We're going to dive into the big questions here, and uh, one of those big questions that I frequently get, uh, this question comes from Linda. Linda is a member of our church, and she asked me at a Bible study many years ago, is the Bible anti-women? Because the Bible was written during a patriarchal culture, and we have to deal with uh, how the Bible is often perceived and interpreted, which is anti-women. So we're going to get to that. But first, you may, those of you who are watching the live show may have seen my shirt, uh, Peace for Ukraine. This is a fundraiser by my good friend, Lauren Seeley. She makes shirts and does fundraisers. So uh, this fundraiser goes to LGBTQIA youth uh, who are in Ukraine uh, and need some support. So that's who Lauren wanted to help out. So I got the shirt. Uh, you can find a link to that in the comment section if you are interested. So thank you for being here. And uh, I wanted to talk with you about women in the Bible and whether or not the Bible is anti-women. It's an interesting question because I think, think the patriarchy that interprets the Bible wants us to believe that the Bible is very anti-women. Why? Because in reality, here's the flip, in reality, if you read the Bible, it is actually very anti-man. <laughs> read the Bible and you will struggle to find a good, faithful man. In fact, you will find men who mess things up over and over again. And so part of what the patriarchal interpretation of the Bible is trying to get us to do is to focus on women, right? Women are supposed to be silent. Women aren't supposed to do this or that, whatever, right? That's, we're going we're gonna to dive into that a little later in this episode. But here's the thing. A, a honest reading of the Bible, Moses messes up. King David messes up, Solomon messes up, the disciples mess up. There's even a moment where Jesus is in his ministry and a Syrophoenician or a Canaanite woman, depending on which gospel you're reading, they tell it differently, um, comes to Jesus and says, uh, while he's eating, and asks for him to heal his daughter. This is one of this this is one of the heroes of the Bible, a woman who says to Jesus, you can heal my daughter. And Jesus says to her, uh, no, it's not my time yet. And he even calls her a dog. And what does the woman, woman do? She goes, no, 
heal my daughter. She persists, right? She persists in faith and gets Jesus to change his mind. And as we talked about last week, changing our minds is repentance. So Jesus even has this moment where he changes his mind and repents and heals this woman's daughter. This is this woman pushing Jesus to live out his ministry that is for the healing of all people. And this woman pushes him to do it. Whew, we are preaching already. So uh, I want to start sort of at the beginning. Actually, today for our Jewish siblings is the holiday of Purim, which celebrates the book of Esther and how Esther saved, helped to save the Jewish people. Purim comes from a word in Hebrew that means lots, uh, casting of lots. And uh, so there's this, uh, in the story, it starts with the king of Persia throwing a party, and he has a queen named Vashti. Vashti is awesome. So if you read Esther, you'll come across Queen Vashti. She's apparently a beautiful woman, and the king, Ahasuerus, wants to show her off. Well, Vashti's like, no, uh-uh. You're not using me like that to be your like trophy wife. So she refuses. And the king and all of his, all of his men are like, well, we can't have this. <laughs> All the women throughout our empire are going to rebel against their husbands. The, the men in this story, uh, the Persian men in this story, come off as just very weak and stupid. Uh, and so anyway, they get rid of Vashti and in comes Queen Esther. And Esther becomes the queen uh, and she hides her Jewishness. Uh, because it's uh, it's looked down upon in the empire, and she wants she doesn't want the king to uh, know that she's Jewish. So her uncle is a man named Mordecai, and Mordecai overhears this attempt by a couple of guys who are close to King Ahasuerus uh, to assassinate him. So he tells the king, and he gets in the good graces of the king. Mordecai is Jewish, uh, but what ends up happening is one of the king's soldiers, commanders, a man named Haman, demands that Mordecai bow down to him and show him his ultimate loyalty. Well, Mordecai is not going to bow down, partly because he's Jewish and he only worships God. Uh, and so he's not going to bow down to this guy, Haman. Haman gets pissed and he ends up creating a plan to kill not only Haman, but he discovers that Haman is Jewish and he starts a plan to kill all the Jewish people. Well, uh, Haman and Esther create an alternative plan where they go to the king and get him uh, to save the Jewish people. It's because of Esther that the Jewish people are saved. It's because of Esther and the way that she uses her, her sexuality, the ways that she uses her brain and her smarts that she's able to convince along with Mordecai, she's able to convince the king to save the Jewish people and um, to 
kill Haman. <laughs> so there's a lot of violence in the Bible, and sometimes, oftentimes, the women get caught up in the violence, uh, and the women here, like Esther, are shown as oftentimes saving the Jewish people. Without Esther, there is there are no Jewish people. Uh, she is a vital role in this story. Hey, uh, Mordecai says that uh, Esther may have been born for such a time as this. To use her courage, to use the gifts of intelligence and sexuality and whatever else she has in order to save other people. It, it was risky, uh, but she did it. This brings up the question, what in your circumstances, what might you have been born to do at this moment? Esther was born for this, right? What are you born for in this moment? Yes. So let's 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 go to some other amazing women of the Bible. There's uh, Hagar. You can read about her in Genesis chapter 16. The Bible uh, content warning, trigger warning, is full of violence, as we have just seen. It's also full of uh, sex and and rape. Uh, so content warning here as we talk about Hagar. Uh, Hagar is Sarah's, uh, Sarah's maidservant, slave. And God has promised Abram and Sarah that they will be a, uh, they will have many children. They will, they will be a huge nation, but they don't have children. And so Abram and Sarah, uh, Abraham and Sarah develop a plan. Sarah says, why don't you take my maidservant, uh, Hagar? You know, this story was written by a man right off the bat, right? This is, so uh, Abram says, okay. And uh, he and uh, Hagar uh, have sex. Uh, Hagar doesn't have much say at all in this, and so this is a tragic story for uh, Hagar. It becomes even more tragic because once Hagar gets pregnant, Sarah becomes insanely jealous of Hagar. She kicks Hagar out of their family, out of their lives, and Abram uh, sends Hagar out into the desert by herself. She gets cast out. Tragic story. And Hagar is by herself. She's with her young son, Ishmael, and uh, she cries out. She cries out to God. And God comes to her in her pain, in her sense of being alone. God is with her. Hagar is a uh, is an Egyptian, is an African uh, woman who gets cast out and God comes to her and sees her in her affliction and in her pain. The story of Hagar is uh, tragic and also crucially important because Hagar is the first person, I think the only person in the Bible who names God. God comes to Moses later and gives God's name to Moses. But Hagar is the one who come, who is able to name God, and she does it by herself. 
and she gives God the name El Roy, which means the God who sees. This is the movement of the biblical narrative, which is the God who sees us in our pain. The God who comes to us and meets us where we are. And Hagar, this woman, teaches us one of the most important names of God in the Bible. El Roy, the God who sees the God who sees us in our pain. You are not alone. Hagar was not alone. God was with Hagar. And when you are in pain and suffering, you are not alone. God is with us because God is the one who sees. Now, if, if you're going to say women can't teach men about God, you're going to miss all of this, right? Because this is amazing stuff that we are being taught by women in the Bible. So that's Hagar. You can read about her in Genesis 16. Two of my favorite women in the Bible. I see Luke. This Luke causes good trouble. These two women cause some good trouble. These two women are named Shifra and Pua. You, they, you can read about them in Exodus chapter 1. Exodus chapter 1 is the story of the Exodus. Brilliantly named uh, book there. But so this is where Pharaoh, uh, there's a new Pharaoh, and Israel has been in Egypt for generations after Joseph and his brothers go down into Israel. They've been there, they've multiplied, and they uh, get more and more of them. And the Pharaoh comes in and says, we're going to enslave these Israelites, have them uh, create our buildings, our temples, by forcing them into slavery. Uh, well, um, there is one commandment that the Israelites love more than any other, apparently, in this story, <laughs> which is the commandment to be fruitful and multiply. <laughs> oh, that's funny. That's funny. Okay, so uh, they, uh, they're like rabbits. Uh, so they just continue to produce more and more Hebrews. And the Pharaoh doesn't like this because there's power in numbers. And so the Pharaoh gets afraid of the Israelites and he says to the Hebrew midwives, Shifra and Pua, he commands them to kill the baby boys who are birthed and to let the girls go free. They can, they can survive. Well, Shifra and Pua enact some nonviolent civil disobedience because they refuse to follow the Pharaoh's laws, commands for them. And so there are more and more baby boys being born. And because they're engaging in nonviolent civil disobedience, Shifra and Pua. So the, king, the Pharaoh comes to them and says, what's the deal? What's going on? Why are there still, I've told you to kill off the boys, and why are there still boys being born to these Hebrews? And Shifra and Pua, <laughs> they say, this is so good. They say, well, the Hebrew women are just so much more vigorous than Egyptian women, and they give birth so fast before we can even get there. They are born. <laughs> it's so, it's brilliant. They, they lie. They lie to the king, right? Now, 
you might say, well, it's a sin to lie, right? Now, uh, they lie to the king to save the Hebrew boys. This is a this is akin, this is kind of like if you were in World War II and you were a Christian in Germany and you were helping your Jewish friends by hiding them up in the base, up in the attic or down in the basement or whatever. And the Gestapo comes to you and says, do you have any Jews here? And of course you're gonna lie and say, no, right? This is Shifra and Pua enacting in some good trouble, some nonviolent civil disobedience. If it wasn't for them, there would be no Moses, right? If it wasn't for them, there would be no Hebrew people because they would have, the boys would have all been killed off. So Shifra and Pua, two excellent examples of nonviolent civil disobedience. They, they do this, the story says, because they are more faithful to God than they are to the political leader. So whenever Christians come to you and say, um, oh, Romans chapter 13, where Paul says uh, you must submit to all political authorities and stuff, you just tell them about Shipra and Pua, right? Whew, I love those. I love those women. They're fantastic. Uh, also, you can tell them about Paul because Paul enacted some nonviolent civil disobedience, too. He did not always follow Romans 13. Paul went against the commands of the Roman emperor, because you're supposed to say Caesar is Lord when you're in the empire. Paul went around saying Jesus is Lord. Paul got his head chopped off by the Roman authorities, not because he submitted to the Roman authorities, but because he worked against them. He subverted them. So even like Paul even doesn't follow his own teachings in Romans 13. So, okay. Uh, let's go to Deborah. Deborah is in Judges chapter 4. And Deborah, Judges takes place before the nation of Israel is put together. Uh, it's when Israel is just a, a tribe, uh, a band of tribes, like the 12 tribes of Israel. And the judges were there, not as we understand judges today so much to uh, solve disputes, that was a part of it. But the judges rose up whenever there was a military threat against uh, the tribes. So the judges would unite the tribes whenever there was a threat against them and they would lead them into war or battle against other groups. Well, you would think that only a man could be a judge, right? No, well, you'd be wrong. <laughs> because Deborah is one of the most important judges in uh, this time of uh, Israel's history. She unites uh, the people together. They fight off uh, some of the enemies of Israel. And uh, actually, you can read about her in Judges chapter 4. And actually, Judges chapter 5 is known as, scholars think it's one of the oldest sections, chapters, writings of the Bible. And it's Deborah's song. It's her song of victory. So the oldest writing in the Bible is about this woman named Deborah, who was a badass. <laughs> Whew, you can read about her in Judges 4 and 5. Good stuff. Queen of Sheba. 
amazing story of the Queen of Sheba in 1 Kings 10 and 2 Chronicles 9. She hears about this man, King Solomon of Israel. Solomon has all of this wisdom and all of this wealth, and she hears rumors about this amazing guy, Solomon, and she wants to see it for herself. So she takes her entourage, her people, and she goes and she sees this man, King Solomon. And she sees all of his wealth and all of his power and all of his wisdom. And she's just amazed by it. She tells him, like, I heard the rumors, but the rumors weren't anywhere close to being true because you're so much more than the rumors had even said. And Solomon's like, well, thank you very much. <laughs> right? Um, and then the Queen of Sheba says this. This is this is the the punch to the gut for solomon this is where the queen of sheba becomes almost the prophet of sheba because she says to solomon that god has given you this wealth and this wisdom and this political power for a purpose to enact justice and righteousness throughout israel so the Queen of Sheba is here to remind Solomon that his job is not to have wealth and power and wisdom for himself, for his own greed and desire for more wealth and more power and more wisdom, but he's been given this for a purpose, to enact justice and righteousness throughout Israel. Now, justice in the Bible is not based on punishment, primarily. Justice for the prophets uh, in the Bible is based on making sure that the widows, the orphans, the poor, the immigrants in your midst have their needs met. That is when the prophets come to the kings and say, you're not doing your job because justice, God's justice, requires that you not gain power and wealth for yourself, but that you ensure that justice and righteousness is given, especially to those who are in need. So this is the Queen of Sheba reminding Solomon to not, to, to not get such a big ego, right? This is her prophetic warning to Solomon. And what does Solomon do? Ah, Solomon's time is known as a very prosperous time for Israel. But Solomon creates buildings, houses for himself, and the temple of God. And how does he create them? Through conscription. He conscripts the men of Israel. What's another word for that? slavery. Solomon, in building the temple, is becoming a new pharaoh. We talked about Shifra and Pua and how they enacted nonviolent civil disobedience against the pharaoh who enslaved people in order to force them to make temples and buildings. Well, what is Solomon doing here? He is not doing what the Queen of Sheba called him to do. 
In fact, he is not executing justice. In fact, he is executing slavery. He's enslaving his own people to force them to create temples, just like the Pharaoh did. So when Solomon comes to power, he takes upon himself the model of Pharaoh as opposed to the model of the Queen of Sheba. The Queen of Sheba is the model that Solomon should follow, but he ends up following the Pharaoh. The Queen of Sheba, a great prophet in the Bible. Here's another great prophet of the Bible. Her name is Huldah. Huldah, you can read about her in 2 Kings 22 and 2 Chronicles 34. Huldah is a prophet, a prophetess of the Bible. And she lives during a time where there's a king named Josiah. Josiah is one of the most important kings of the Old Testament. Uh, and he, during his reign, there's a book that's discovered. We think it's the book of Deuteronomy. Uh, and they discover this book in the temple. And nobody in King Josiah's entourage, including the high priest, can interpret what this book, Deuteronomy, means. So they're passing it around and they're like, dude, I've got no idea what this means. <laughs> what is Moses talking about here in Deuteronomy? So they're like, well, how can we figure this out? So one of them says, Oh, the prophetess Huldah, she will know. So they go and they get Huldah and she reads it and she interprets it for them. And they're all amazed at what she has to say. And so anytime a guy, a, a man <laughs> uses uh, certain passages in the Bible to say that women shouldn't teach men, <laughs> just remind them of the prophetess Huldah. Huldah was the one who knew how to interpret the book of Deuteronomy, one of the most important books in the Hebrew scriptures. Who do you go to understand what this book means? The prophetess Huldah. All right, let's get to the New Testament. So how can you talk about women in the Bible and not talk about Mary of Nazareth, Jesus's mom, right? Mary... I think, is the most important human model for Jesus. Mary, his mother, uh, not only gives birth to Jesus, says yes to God. This is crucial and what Christians tend to emphasize is Mary's faith when it comes to saying yes to God. Uh, that's fine and good. But even more than that, in addition to that, Mary has her Magnificat, and in her Magnificat, Mary does, proclaims, what Jesus is going to do. This is why I think Jesus learns much of his mission from his mother. Mary, in her Magnificat in Luke chapter 1, declares that there's a revolution coming. She declares that the powerful will be made low and the lowly will be lifted up. She declares that, declares that the rich will be sent away empty and the poor will be given food to eat. It's this radical reversal of how we typically live in human culture. And Mary 
is speaking this forth in Luke chapter one. You know, uh, there's one of my favorite Bible scholars, feminists is uh, Sister Elizabeth Johnson. She wrote the book, She Who Is, where she talks about all of the feminine imagery of God in the Bible. And she says this about uh, Mary's Magnificat. The Magnificat is a revolutionary song of salvation whose political, economic, and social dimensions cannot be blunted. Uh, we tend to think that the gospel, that Jesus's message, that the whole Bible is not about how we live our lives today, but about where you go after you die. Mary is here to tell us that the gospel, the good news, the message of the Bible is not primarily about where you go after you die, but how we live our lives together right now. Ooh, Mary, she's just flipping things upside down. She says, uh, Sister Elizabeth Johnson says, the, the battered woman, the single parent without resources, those without food on the table or without even a table, the homeless family, the young abandoned to their own devices, the old who are discarded, all are encompassed in the hope that Mary proclaims in the revolutionary Mary's Magnificat that is challenging us, inviting us to live in a whole different way with one another. Oh, okay. Uh, next, I want to talk about Mary Magdalene and this, this amazing woman that you, I, have you heard of Joanna? She's, oh my goodness. So you can read about Mary. When Mary is first brought on the scene in Luke chapter eight, She's mentioned with Joanna. Joanna and Mary have been following Jesus just like the disciples, just like the male disciples. These, they are disciples of Jesus. Joanna is crucially important because she, <laughs> I love this, she is the wife of a guy named Chusa. Chusa is King Herod's steward. What does that mean? Chusa is the one who is in charge of Herod's finances. Herod, you 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 know, is uh, the one who kills John the Baptist, the one who is going to uh, be involved in the execution of Jesus. And one of Herod's right hand men, his treasurer, uh, is his wife, is following Jesus. Not just following Jesus, but funding Jesus's ministry. Joanna is, this is badass stuff. Joanna is risking her life as the wife of the steward of King Herod by using King Herod's money <laughs> to fund Jesus's ministry. Ooh. Oh, come on. That is, that is some nonviolent civil disobedience. That is causing some good trouble right there, Joanna. Wow. That is amazing stuff. I love it. So that's, that's kind of all we get about Joanna in the scriptures. She's a badass. Uh, Mary Magdalene. 
uh, Mary Magdalene, what I wanted to, there's books have been written about Mary Magdalene. Maybe some of you have read some of them. What I want to tell you about Mary Magdalene is that it is Mary Magdalene, according to Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Mary Magdalene, Jesus says, uh, the, the men, this is where the Bible can be viewed as very anti-man, as we were talking about earlier. The men are the ones who are like, oh yeah, Jesus, we will follow you all the way to the cross. We're not going to abandon you. And what happens when push comes to shove and Jesus goes to the cross? The men are nowhere to be found. They are, they're cowards. They run away. As a man, I can't really blame them, right? But what do the women do? They are faithful to the end. Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of Jesus, they are all there looking upon Jesus as he is dying, following him all the way to the cross. And after that, on the third day in John chapter 21, we read that Mary goes to the tomb and sees that it is empty. She thinks, as we all would, that somebody has stolen Jesus's body. So she goes to Peter and she says to him and to another disciple that they have stolen Jesus's body and the men go running to the tomb because they think, they remember, oh wait, maybe Jesus has been risen from the dead. They go running to the tomb, but they don't see Jesus anywhere. And so immediately they leave. They're impatient once again, and they leave. Mary goes back and she meets who she thinks is the gardener, but it's the risen Jesus. And Jesus says, hey, who are you looking for? And Mary's weeping and she says, could you tell me what they did with his body? And the risen Jesus says, Mary. Mary hears the sound of her voice or the sound of her name. And she looks and she says, teacher, Jesus. She recognizes Jesus. She stays there when the men wouldn't. And Jesus says to her, go tell my brothers that I am resurrected. Jesus ordains Mary to be the first preacher of the resurrection. Mary is the first teacher, preacher of the most important event in Christian history, the resurrection. And somebody's going to tell you that women can't preach? Somebody's going to tell you that women can't teach men about God? Come on! Jesus never says that, and neither should any of us. So here I'm getting to, I'm getting to my, there are so many, we could talk forever about the amazing women of the Bible. But here I want to talk, I want to, I want to conclude with a woman named Phoebe. Phoebe is mentioned at the end of Romans chapter 16. And Paul, who's just written his, this is his magnum opus, his longest letter in the New Testament is Romans. And Paul 
in Romans 16 mentions Phoebe. Phoebe, uh, he says, I commend to you Phoebe. And scholars say, many scholars say that when you commend someone uh, to a, a, a group with a letter, the person you are commending is going to be the one who reads the letter to the church. Not only read the letter to the church, but also answer any questions and explain this letter to the church. And he sends it with a woman named Phoebe. He says all of these great things about Phoebe, how trustworthy she is, how amazing she is. And he sends this letter to the churches in Rome and with Phoebe, who is going to explain it to them. The first interpreter, the first person to explain this crucially important letter in the New Testament was a woman named Phoebe. <laughs> this is, if you want more on this, you can read uh, the work by uh, Retta Finger and um, Scott McKnight has, has written a lot of this on this too. But you may be wondering, and we'll get to some comments in the in the questions. Um, uh, we'll get we'll get to the the comments here in a bit. But uh, you may be wondering, what about Paul? Right? Like Paul is known for being very anti women. So what is he doing sending his most important letter with a woman who is going to interpret it to the men and the women of Rome? That doesn't compute, does it? Well, when I was in seminary, I took an introduction to New Testament class and we went over the letters of Paul, obviously, right? In 2 Corinthians chapter 14, we get this these few lines where Paul says that women should not speak in church. You've heard it before. Well, that's really weird. It's a really weird section of this chapter because it comes almost out of out of nowhere uh it's almost like somebody uh who was a scribe later on inserted this into second or first corinthians chapter 14. and in fact that's the theory that a lot of scholars have in part because in second or in first corinthians chapter 11 Paul has just said that women should prophesy in church just as the men do. So in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul is talking about how women should be speaking in church to men and to women, should be prophesying and teaching just like the men do. But a couple chapters later, Paul is now all of a sudden saying that women shouldn't be speaking. It's doesn't make any sense at all. And so uh, there is a lot of evidence that a later scribe inserted that into 1 Corinthians chapter 14. So I'll put a, I'll try to put a link here in the comment section uh, where you can do a little more research on that if you would like. So uh, I think I, I think that Paul was actually very pro-women. When Paul says in Galatians that 
in Christ, there's no longer uh, Jew or Greek, slave or, fee, f slave or free, male and female. I think that is the hype of Paul's theology, that in Christ, these categories no longer matter as much as they do as treating one another the same, right? As, as much as refusing to use religion as an excuse to, uh, to be against any of these categories. We can no longer do that anymore because of what Christ has given us. So to say that women can't preach or teach in the church is anti-Christ. It's anti-Christian because it's, it's, it begins to create these barriers between us and them. Jesus washes those barriers away. Paul knows it in Galatians, and it's only because of a later scribe who wants to be anti-women and force Paul to be anti-women who brings that into 1 Corinthians chapter 14. So there you have it. Uh, my many of my favorite women of the Bible. I'm sure that you have so many more. Uh, so let's, let's see here. Uh, wow. There are a lot of comments. Okay. Um, all right. Well, uh, uh, hi, Lita. Uh, hi, Amber, my dear friend. Hello. Hello, Melanie. Okay. Let's see. Rahab. Oh, Dina, Rahab. Okay. Rahab. It's so fantastic. So the Israelites are, are coming into the Holy Land and they send out scouts into this new land and uh, they see that uh, the, they see how powerful the Canaanites are, right? And so they go and they stay with, they meet Rahab, who is a prostitute. Uh, and she has, uh, uh, she has a, a house uh, um, where things happen. <laughs> Watch Pastor Adam as he steps slowly away from this conversation. <laughs> That's awesome. Ray, so Rahab is a prostitute. She's got this brothel, whatever. And the men go in uh, and engage in whatever it is that they engage in at a brothel. And Rahab promises uh, to protect them. And they promise to protect Rahab. Rahab is seen as uh, faithful and she's Rahab the prostitute never uh it's interesting because the bible never shows her as repenting or changing or doing anything other than her job as a prostitute right there's no like oh yeah i'm gonna stop doing that um but what happens in the in the new testament is that we discover in i think it's matthew chapter one yes matthew chapter one that rahab is one of the great great grandmothers of Jesus. If it's not for Rahab the prostitute, the Israelites don't survive. If it's not for Rahab the prostitute, we might not have Jesus. <laughs> Rahab the prostitute is also seen in James and uh, another book of the Bible as a model of faith. Oh, yes, Dina. Bring in the Rahab. Let's go. Come on. How do you spell that? Uh, Purim is spelled oh, you, P-U-R-I-M. Uh, Dina, thank you. Thank you. 
Uh, Vashti is way more street cred from religious leaders. Should get way more street cred from religious leaders than she does. Yes, Amber. Vashti is a powerful example of um, of awesomeness. <laughs> I love Vashti. She's so good. Um, uh, Mordecai is Jewish, not Haman. Did I get that wrong, Jeff? Yeah, Mordecai was uh, his uncle. I may have gotten that wrong. So Mordecai is the Jewish uncle of Esther, and Haman is the is the uh, uh, soldier commander of the army. So um, I might have just been so excited that I just got all of that mixed up. Thank you, Jeff, for for correcting that. So uh, let's see. Uh, Luke, anger can be either holy or destructive. Yes, yes. Um, let's see. Uh, Amber, I was born for great cheese platter, but beyond that, I'm still figuring it out. Amber, I, you can't argue with cheese platter. Cheese platter is awesome. So, <laughs> uh, that's fantastic. Servant, Luke says servant in the biblical context, often, not always, is code for queer. Yeah, uh, there's a book you can find it. There's a book. I forget what the name is, but it's a book about the commander, soldier of uh, uh, one of the Roman commanders. And Jesus meets up with him and the commander says, hey, my servant is sick. Can you please uh, heal him? And Jesus is like, I've never found any faith outside, blah, blah, blah. Like you have such great faith, right, uh, to this Roman commander. Um, and there's a book that says that the way that the man talks about servant is code for uh, having a uh, gay relationship. Uh, so they were, they might have been lovers, this commander and his servant. So this guy makes the argument that there's some uh, subtle reading of this where you could make a very a, a clear case for that. Uh, so thank you, Luke, for, for bringing that up. And so here is Jesus possibly uh, being met with someone he knows is gay. And what does Jesus do? Doesn't condemn him. Doesn't say, oh, you must repent from this or whatever. He heals his potential lover. Thank you, Luke. Yeah. Okay. Uh, thank you, Lynn. Thank you. Elroy, yeah, Jessica. Hagar is so inspiring. Yeah, Elroy, the God who sees. The God who sees. Love it. Uh, there's a, uh, Melanie asks, so there is abortion in the Bible. I'm not sure what, what brought that up, Melanie. Um, there is in the, oh, in the book of Numbers, I believe it is, there is a, no, it's Exodus. In the book, I'm pretty sure it's the book of Exodus. There is a scenario, the closest to abortion in the Bible that we get is from the book of Exodus. I think it's chapter 22. Somebody might be able to uh, correct me on that. Um, but I think it's Exodus chapter 22 where Jesus, where uh, where there is a fight among two men, and a pregnant woman steps in and gets hit. Uh, her her pregnancy gets hit, and there is a uh, uh, the fetus gets aborted, and 
the ruling there is that if all that's lost is the fetus, then uh, the man has to pay some kind of restitution. But if the woman loses her life, then life for a life. So here, the fetus is not treated as life for a life because the Bible doesn't view it as, at least Exodus doesn't view it as a life. So uh, the fetus is not viewed as a life in the way that the woman is viewed as a life. So that's the closest that we get to anything close to an abortion in the Bible. Um, hope that makes sense. Um, yeah, the numbers, Melanie, is where, is, I think it's Numbers chapter 5, is where uh, if a man thinks his wife has been unfaithful, he can take her to a priest and uh, he gets some weird magical witchery <laughs> sorcery concoction together uh with like some dust from the temple and some water or some juice or something and she's supposed to drink it and if, if there's a in the hebrew it's a little bit um complicated understanding what's happening here but if the fetus drops uh essentially if it gets stillborn an abortion that uh she what what one she was lying or something like that anyway this is this is the story that you are uh looking at i think um others say that it's just her thigh if her thigh falls which wouldn't have affected the fetus at all so it's just a it's a it's a weird story i think that the exodus exodus example is is much better um much closer to to what we're talking about so but uh they both can be used um let's see yeah uh amber going back to the prophetess holda there were other prof male prophets during that time there were a whole bunch of men who could have interpreted deuteronomy but they went to holda because they knew holda was a badass right <laughs> they knew holda knew what she was talking about so uh, that's awesome. So Luke, radical reversals is how social justice is achieved. That's what Mary is getting at. So amen to that. Um, uh, yeah, Herod was a Putin type. Yeah, that's it. That's it. Uh, yeah, did Mary Magdalene and Jesus have a thing? They may have. They may have. I don't know. I kind of think, uh, I, yeah, the Da Vinci Code uh, talked about their potential marriage. I, I don't know. I, I, I don't think it matters. I, I kind of think that Jesus wasn't married. I kind of think that he knew, he knew his mission and it, I don't think it involved being married. I could be wrong. I don't know. It doesn't, it's not like, I think that he knew that he was going to die at the hand because he was causing good trouble. And I think that he didn't want to put Mary through that. Uh, so, um, I, I, I think the evidence is that they didn't get married, but they certainly, I, I imagine that they had a deep love and affection for one another uh, and possibly were in love with one another. So uh, I think that's probably true. Let's see. 
Yep. Jesus's right hand woman, Mary Magdalene. That's it, Jessica. Beautifully said. Uh, the beloved disciple in John. Yep. Uh, Amber, it's amazing how there's so few women in the Bible in comparison to the men, and yet so many that are recorded are incredible powerhouses. Yes. <laughs> this is why this gets back to the point that I've been trying to make throughout this episode is like, uh, the Bible could be viewed as very pro-women and very anti-men. <laughs> the men are always messing things up. So uh, this gets back to what I think is so crucial about Jesus and the resurrection is uh, coming from a, a man, um, from me, who messes things up frequently all the time, uh, is that the disciples, the male disciples who have abandoned Jesus, promised yeah, I'll go with you all the way to the cross, but have abandoned Jesus. The women are the ones who go to the cross and are faithful to the end. The men are not. And what does Jesus do? He comes back to the men and he says, let's try again. Let's give it another try. Jesus is always coming back to us when we have been unfaithful, when we have, when we have not followed him. And he says, let's give it another try. Let's try again. Now he goes to Mary and says, hey, go tell my man all about this, <laughs> right? That's uh, good stuff. So um, let's see. What else do we have here? Uh, sex work is real work, Luke. That's it. Um, all right. We've got some Dorcas. We've got some Ruth. Yeah, we, sh we should talk about Ruth and Dorcas. It's all good stuff. So uh, maybe uh, maybe another time. Uh, I love those people. So uh, yeah, there are so many more women in the Bible. Hey, Princess Dallas, Lyle, good to see you from Spokane, UCC, Westminster. Yes. Uh, so um, there are so many more women of the Bible who just do amazing stuff. Uh, so if you want to research those, uh, put them in the chat section. Um, that'd be fantastic. So, uh, anyway, this, uh, those are my top 10 maybe. Uh, and there are so many more, but anyway, it's been fun. So thank you for this conversation. Thank you for your comments. And, uh, that is it for this episode of one question with pastor Adam. You can check out all of the episodes from the last three seasons on iTunes or wherever you listen to your podcast, you can check them out. Also at the Raven Foundation at ravenfoundation.org. And uh, I'm taking next week is spring break for us here in the Portland area. So I'm taking next week off to spend uh, some time with the family. And so we will do this all again two weeks from today at 11 o'clock a.m. Pacific time on Thursday. We'll do the live show and you can yeah, keep up with all the episodes over on iTunes or wherever. And if you want to share this, if you like this and you want to share it with someone, that'd be awesome. Uh, you can share it on iTunes too. And if, if you want to leave me a review on iTunes or wherever you listen to your podcast, that would be, I would, I would love that. That would be fantastic. So friends, uh, two weeks from now, we'll do this again. I hope you can join me then. And uh, until then, God be with you.